came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Xenia. Hello, Jason. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Welcome back, everyone. It's a penultimate episode of the season. Right. We're almost there. It's been an amazing season, actually. Really enjoyed like re-listening to all the episodes, all the interviews we did. They're just fantastic. I know. I, I've, I've enjoyed all the conversations so much, and I also have I've learned so much. I mean, mm. I learn every episode. We keep saying this every season, right? Um, but this is just such fantastic experience, and it's, just, it's been so great engaging with um, early career researchers. So, yeah. I think like more than any time before I've, it seems like almost every day I'm like, whether it's with students or other colleagues here or people I have meetings with, I'm like recommending the season to people mm -hmm, for different mm -hmm. reasons. I don't know if you find that as well, but I, yeah. I've ended up, um, like referencing the, the current season more than ever actually in conversations. Same, because I think um, this season has really maybe made us, you know, as in you and me, uh, reflect more on kind of what we're doing and how we're engaging with research, right? Yeah. Um, and the conversations about pos positionality and methodology, these are the conversations that we kind of have on a daily basis almost. Yeah. But also, you know, what I really loved about this season, and, <laughs> and we're talking about this, like it's the final episode and it's not, so I've got no idea what we're going to talk about <laughs> in the final episode. But what I really loved about is how many early career researchers, how many guests have a, have talked about creativity that, you know, it's it's not just about really the bog standard methodology. Yeah, that's really true. And um, I think maybe it's because these young researchers are operating in institutions that are um, like have certain norms and limits and when they're pushing those limits, whether it's methodologically or ideologically, philosophically, all the lees, right? Um, mm. They, like it also, once you do that and you challenge norms, then I think that taps into your own creativity and like that innate creativity that we all have. And then you start to explore and do other stuff and like be more free, right? And so, mm. uh, yeah, a lot of them are talking about different different ways of, of communicating, different ways of expressing ideas, you know, which is exciting. Absolutely. And I think it's great that today's episode is almost kind of a reflection and a summary of this all. Um, you know, it's about participation and creativity and methodology. And so hope you're all enjoyed as much as we have. Okay, so we've been talking about methodologies quite a lot this season, and it's been fantastic to reflect on a whole range of approaches and thinking behind the research that currently is being done in disaster studies. 
Today we continue to reflect on methodologies and learn, of course, from our guest. And we are absolutely delighted to finally chat to Dr. Kyra Zoe-Kanetti. Um, Kyra has been in our live stream last year when we talked about the manifesto and the ethics in disaster research. So um, some of you may remember her amazing inter intervention. Um, and it's really nice to have you with us today, Kyra. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here also. Ksenia and Jason, um, I really also enjoyed that live stream we had and I learned Yay. so much from other uh, early career researchers and the amazing things that uh, they're all doing in the field. And I just feel very privileged to be part of all this. Thank you so much for coming back. Um, it's, I'm sure we'll have a fantastic conversation today. So Dr. Kyra Zoe Alburo Canete is a Filipino feminist scholar with training in anthropology and critical development studies. Um, Kyra specializes in gender disasters and development. Um, she served as the founding executive director of A2D Project, research group for alternatives to development, a research to practice NGO in the Philippines, focusing on disaster risk reduction, humanitarian assistance, and inclusive sustainable development. And currently, Kyra is a postdoctoral researcher for the Humanitarian Governance Project at the International Institute of Social Studies, Erasmus University, Rotterdam, in The Hague, the Netherlands. So, okay, let's um, go straight into questions. You know, when we started the podcast, we kind of dived, I guess, straight into questions about our guest's research. Um, but over this last five and a half seasons, we kind of realized that we want to know more about people and we really became curious about everybody's journey uh, to disaster scholarship. So my first question is therefore pretty obvious. How did you end up researching disasters? Yeah, thank you for this question, Ksenia. I think um, this is very important because we often take for granted how Researchers are also an embodied part of the studies they are, they are conducting, right? And it's mm -hmm. also important for us to really recognize that, you know, uh, where we come from, uh, what motivates us to do what we do, as mm -hmm. eventually these influences become, you know, inscribed in our work, whether we are aware of them or not. And for me uh, personally, I think that it's very important that we are aware uh, of these influences as well. So... To address your question, um, I was born and raised in the Philippines, which is considered one of the most disaster-prone countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I've lived for many years in less affluent neighborhoods in my home city of Cebu. And so growing up in this context um, has given me a, a deep familiarity of issues surrounding my current research interests on disasters because these were very much part of my lived realities as well. I've, uh, I know what it feels like not to have running water and electricity for a month after a typhoon. Mm. I know what it feels like to, you know, see your neighborhood and not recognize it, having floodwaters enter your home and all the anxiety that you feel when, you know, uh, uh, there is a, a typhoon coming your way. So, but of course, despite all these as being part of my experiences, believe it or not, disasters sort of fell into the background of normality mm -hmm. as far as my journey into social research is concerned. My interests were centered around women's organizing and gender justice. 
And so much of my earlier works have mainly been along these lines. Um, I think it was only when I co-founded my NGO in the Philippines, A2D Project, in 2010, where I would say it by serendipity, <laughs> I came into contact with a vibrant community of practice working on DRR issues and programs. And I sort of, uh, quote-unquote, debuted my research on disasters when I was asked to document the community-based DRR program of the municipality of San Francisco in Camotes Island in my province. And I assisted them in putting together their entry for the 2011 Sasakawa Award in DRR, which they won, mm. by the way. Mm. Um, I was Amazing. really inspired yeah, by the ways in which um, local communities took an active part in, municipal, mm. in the municipal program in ways I haven't really witnessed before. And that led me down the rabbit hole to disaster research. And I was thinking there's really a lot of potential um, in social research with using a disaster lens. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I began to work on more projects around this area, engaged with other scholars in the field and so on. But one thing that I always brought with me was a critical and feminist perspective anchored in, you know, in my initial work with urban poor women in Cebu. This is amazing, you know, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. What, I guess, touches me in particular, and I've been thinking about this quite a lot, is that when we read disaster research very often, you know, disaster is a kind of I'm shown as almost an apolitical process. You know, there is a lot of reporting on, okay, this is happening, you know, this is how we're going to deal with this top down, right? And communities are very often, uh, well, ignored or just kind of put to, to a side. But I think Jason will hopefully agree, the, the more we engage with um, disaster scholars who are coming um, with different perspectives, the more, the more we realize that actually activism and disaster research seem to be going hand in hand. And it seems like your story kind of reflects that as well, you know, with your founding of NGO. Um, and yeah, that's just absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And that is something I really agree with Ksenia because I, I, I would identify myself not as a scholar that would detach themselves from from these um, you know what you call topics of research or areas mm -hmm. of research but I would like to see myself as more uh, embedded in in these issues as well because um, you know I, I also live through these particular experiences and I, I draw a lot of inspiration from from that connection. So Kyra, I know that the work that you've been doing on disasters very much focuses on inclusion and exclusion. And um, something I think is, is interesting is this wider institutional push that we've been seeing for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we, we quite often talk about this and how these words are maybe being manipulated and co-opted by the establishment, like many other concepts before them. So for you, what does inclusion in DRR mean? And how do the critical feminist approaches that you employ in your research help you to frame disasters? You know what, that's a really good conversation to have. And there are perhaps many angles with which to approach this. 
um, along with notions of you know empowerment, resilience, and participation, mm-hmm. inclusion is what I would consider one of the key buzzwords in contemporary mm-hmm. times within development and disaster practice mm-hmm. as well. So and you know while in principle I support inclusion, it's hard not to right. It's sort of a fuzzy concept. But like any buzzword, it's important to unpack what it means, and it is often appropriate in the ways in which it is often appropriated or rather misappropriated mm-hmm. in practice. So um, I guess in my work with women, gender, and development, um, which I mentioned was really a formative part of my scholarship. I have often witnessed a very additive approach to achieving, you know, quote-unquote, gender equality. Mm-hmm. And by additive, I mean an add women and stir approach, which mm-hmm. really does little to transform unequal gender relations. Now, so central to, uh, I guess, feminist approaches is the, recogni- uh, the recognition of how intersecting and gendered power relations result in the inclusion of some and the exclusion of others in various aspects of social life. And I think while there is a misconception that feminist theory is only relevant to women's issues, I find that it provides us with analytical tools to understand many phenomena, including disasters. Now, as to your question in the field of DRR, especially in my experience as a development practitioner on top of being a scholar, I have seen how inclusion is often translated into technical terms, mm-hmm. counting, naming, and classifying the vulnerable and mm-hmm. having them, you know, in quotation marks, participate in activities mm-hmm. that would somehow help fix their vulnerabilities as deemed appropriate by experts. Now, on one hand, you see this additive approach being applied, um, add women, children, and the elderly, people with disability, and so on, and stir, um, where including these groups become you know, um, a perfunctory and a critical exercise of box mm-hmm. ticking. But perhaps what warrants, um, for me, deeper attention are two things. First is how rendering technical this thing we call vulnerability results in its depoliticization, wherein you know we delink vulnerability from broader structural political issues and processes that shape it. And second is the erasure of local and indigenous knowledges while privileging expert scientific and dare I say Western knowledges in, in reducing disaster risks. So the question to ask perhaps would be, to what extent does inclusion amplify voices of the vulnerable? And to what extent does inclusion perpetuate systems of knowledges and practices um, that shape and are shaped by relations of power and inequality? And I'd like to draw an example uh, from my own work in, in Tacloban City, when I when I looked at disaster reconstruction for my PhD research, um, and uh, I looked at women's participation in disaster recovery, and many studies have shown that women are actually vital to community recovery after a disaster. And so there's a lot of push to include women, to be more inclusive to women in these processes. And while many would label women's participation as empowering, and in some instances, it can't 
it can be. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you know women shouldn't be participating. Mm. But my research has shown how disaster recovery has often harnessed existing gender norms mm. and has tended to instrumentalize women's care-based practices mm. to serve particular visions of recovery, which do not necessarily always resonate with the realities of people and their aspirations. So unequal gender relations remain unchallenged. And to top all that, disaster disaster recovery and resilience building are built on the backs of women. So to sum it up, I guess, for this question, um, while inclusion is a necessary and key theme in DRR, we should have a healthy skepticism of what this means and how it is carried out in practice. Um, perhaps by being attentive to questions of inclusion of whom, in what, and towards what forms of envisioned futures. I, I, I really like this reflection, but I also wonder, you know, when we use the word inclusion, it automatically implies that it's kind of, you know, we, we include into where we are, right? Um, and so who includes and who decides where the border of inclusion lies is such a problematic question for me because normally I guess when we see inclusion in practice it becomes that as long as you behave like me right and you become you know this this and that preferably white middle-aged men but you know that's quite hard to achieve for some of us sorry Jason that wasn't targeted at you <laughs> you know that yeah sorry you know what I mean um I'll exclude you from that um you know that then the inclusion in terms of behavior and value becomes easy. But as you said, you know, when when somebody doesn't fit, a group of people doesn't fit that characteristic, um, the inclusion becomes either tokenistic or not at all. And I think uh, what's also important to recognize, in especially in context of disaster recovery and reconstruction, is that um, building back better or, you know, um, re rebuilding a society after, you know, damage and loss after a, a disaster, um, there tends to be, uh, you know, something that comes along with uh, reconstruction is a citizenship project of trying to correct the deficiencies of certain <laughs> populations. Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. this is what I saw very uh, starkly in my, in my research, wherein, you know, informal settlers were seen as vulnerable and therefore mm. deficient and therefore in need of correction. And so I think these are issues that also need to be problematized rather than just to see reconstruction through the filter of hazard avoidance in the future. Let's talk a little bit about um, your work and the methods you use. And so, I'm, I've, you know, I think I've told you probably a hundred times before, but <laughs> I absolutely love your photoquanta paper. Um, I, when I read it, I, I screamed, um, John Twig recommended it. And I was like, wow, you know, this is the best paper ever. I literally told everyone about it. Um, I, I just enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Xenia, <laughs> for promoting my work. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so for people who haven't read it yet, you know, go go read the paper. We'll we'll link it in the show notes. Um, so anyway, in your paper, you explain, and I quote, that Fotoquento um, focuses on the rethreading and interweaving small stories 
but a particular experience which shaped the bigger story of carving out post-disaster futures. It stresses the interconnectedness of stories and the people who produce them in order to count the persistent silences that surround the political, economic and ecological issues that form the basis of the gendered inequalities, disempowerment and disadvantage aggravated by experiences of disaster. It promotes knowledge production from the margins as a site of nurturing possibilities for transformation." End of quote. And I, I find this so powerful. I find this kind of nurturing possibilities for transformation mm. is such a wonderful phrase, you know, and just it, it, it just means so much. It, it has so much power in it and so much strength. So how did you choose this method and other emancipatory methods that you use? And why have you chosen to go this kind of difficult route? You know, you could have done the normal positivist survey, <laughs> right? And that's it. Absolutely. <laughs> Why did I make life more difficult for me? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I really like how you label my methodology as emancipatory. Um, that is something I certainly aspire for in mm. the long run. But I also do not want to overstate what I have achieved with the method, as I think there is still so much more that should still be done. Um, if anything, uh, the development of the method really stemmed from the discomfort, discomforts I have felt over my own privileged position as I researched experiences of displaced urban poor women in disaster recovery. And I was very much aware of the imbalances in, in that relationship. And so for the benefit of uh, those who are listening, uh, Photo Cuento is a feminist photo-based uh, method which I employed to examine disaster reconstruction through women's eyes. And uh, it utilizes techniques of uh, what we call photo elicitation. And basically, it is just using photographs in an interview setting. Uh, cuento is a Filipino term which means story. Um, so when you say photo cuento, um, it's therefore a method that allows study participants to tell their stories with photographs and therefore, in the context of research, allow them to co-construct their narratives of disaster recovery. And so I, I can't go into the full process, uh, but it is um, highlighted and, and described in, in more detail in my uh, recent uh, publication. And as, as I said during uh, our live stream before, um, the doing a PhD is really the best time to explore, you know, mm. new ways of thinking about and doing things because it's, uh, you have time, you know, you have about four mm. years to really think about what you want to do and to test out your ideas. And I was really fortunate to have that space as well. And so Photo Cuento was something that emerged through uh, that constant process of reflection and as I was working out my research plan, I, I was really thinking back on my own training um, in social science research mm -hmm. and all the conventional research methods that we are exposed to. And um, unfortunately, as part of that reflection, I also realized that I was um, party to what I might call disempowering or extractive research that really... Um, you know, does not uh, provide space for research participants to take an active role in constructing knowledge that is 
basically about their own lives and about their own realities, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of how I can apply feminist principles and research to studying disaster reconstruction. And one of the key issues I aim to address was really the issue of representational and interpretational authority. Um, it's not something that, um, I guess it's not something we can deny that from the moment we uh, identify our topic, our research question, our research instruments, when we ask our questions and when we interpret our data, our authorial voice uh, already takes hold of the narrative. And I was thinking to myself, how might I open up spaces for more collaborative production of knowledge, which are sensitive to issues of power? And this is most mm -hmm. important in disaster settings where such relationships are actually um, most pronounced. And I did not want to be reproducing that form of um, unequal power imbalances, especially where people um, are most vulnerable and, you know, ethical concerns are really uh, of primacy. And yeah, so when I was uh, thinking of what uh, method might be most suitable, um, I was thinking of what tools of inquiry might enable me to, you know, open up that space of the research process. And um, when we think about our experiences in disaster research, we're often used to having or utilizing word-based and very highly technical instruments, um, mm. employing, you know, as we uh, analyze disaster risk and, you know, whether or not someone and something is resilient or not and so on. And so I ask what techniques might be able to generate more effectively narratives and stories as well as embodied experiences, relationships with place, which is actually very important in for uh, disaster, uh, in disaster experiences, as well as emotions, uh, which are uh, central to to recovery, but are often really overlooked. And so I was concerned about implementing a method that embodies feminist ethical commitments and promotes research that is relevant for communities I work with, and. I guess we can only make our research relevant if we open up the research process to participation using approaches that are actually meaningful to them. And certainly there has been a lot of evidence that points towards the potential of photo-based methods to facilitate more engaged and meaningful research relationships. But I have to tell you, it was not easy. Um, the the <laughs> the most that I struggled with was actually to give up power. I was mm -hmm. always so mm -hmm. anxious about if it's gonna work and if I should just intervene a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so it is. It was always it was always that struggle because you always because when you're doing a, a PhD, you're also concerned about your timelines and your milestones and all these things that you want to really take hold of that process. Mm -hmm. But I always mm -hmm. had to stop myself because that would really undermine the entire, um, you know, undertaking the entire project. And so I put as much emphasis on the process as much as I do on the outcome of the research. And I think as a final point, this entails operationalizing reflexivity. And we often use 
reflexivity somehow, even casually now. Just, you know, I'm reflecting on this and that, but how do we operationalize that in mm-hmm. in our research um, and help us confront our own struggles? And for me, it was about decentering myself from the conduct of research. Um, and so I kept a reflexivity diary, which was actually separate from my field notes. And that is where I wrote down my methodological reflections, which helped me adapt to uh, what I was seeing. And, you know, I was also seeing some bad practices on my part, like correcting participants about what they saw in photographs. And, mm. and when I was uh, when I was writing that down, um, it prompted me to think, oh, I shouldn't do that, but let them interpret the, the photos as, as they see it and so on. So it was also a journey for me as much as it was a journey for study participants. sharing that with us Kyra I think we need to wrap up but I just want to really thank you Kyra for um, contributing to this season and um, I think a lot of what you're saying really aligns with some of the key themes that we've been picking up on Mm. Um, definitely about reflexivity of researcher um, the the like critiquing the way that we engage with disaster affected communities honoring and prioritizing people who are affected. Um, and just like the way that you're approaching research is really demonstrating true um, radical thinking and like deeper philosophical inquiry than we commonly associate with disaster studies perhaps. Um, so we really appreciate you coming on the show and for everything that you're doing. I'm also really thankful for the space to talk about my work. And I think a lot of these conversations are necessary. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take part in further conversations or whatever platforms um, might be available in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kara. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Kyra Zoe Kanyete, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast. 